Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here in not-so-sunny Vancouver, continuing my conversations from the 33rd NeurIPS conference, and I've got the pleasure of being seated with Daphne Kohler, founder and CEO of Incitro. Daphne, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I historically or typically start these off by having, the, uh, having my guests share a little bit about their backgrounds, and uh, I will certainly allow you to do that. But I feel like we could spend, you know, the entire time on your background. You've done <laughs> so much in this space. We were talking before we pressed record about your history, even with this conference. Yeah. But without further ado, please introduce yourself to our audience. Thank you. No, I I do feel like an old timer at this point. <laughs> I was doing machine learning long, long before it became popular. So I really got into this field around 93 or 94, maybe even a little earlier than that, have been uh, a long time participant in this conference, um, in fact, was the program chair in 2007 and the general chair in 2008. And I very much remember how in 2007, it was the first time the conference actually hit a thousand attendees and a thousand papers submitted. And we all thought that was really, really big. And now we have 12,000, 13 this year. This is 13,000 attendees plus five on the waiting list who couldn't get in. Hmm. Uh, And I don't even know how many thousands of papers were submitted. All the graphs I see are exponential. They are ridiculous. (laughs) And so I remember the conference and what we old timers feel is the good old days when you could actually go and run into people that you know, and now you can't even find them because there's just such a crowd that you can't even move. So Mm. it's an interesting transition that we've seen in this space in the last three to five years. And in some ways, it's been an amazing resurgence for this field. And I'm super excited and proud of what we as a community have accomplished. But at the same time, you sort of somewhat miss the intimacy of this uh, of the community as it used to be. But anyway, coming back to the <laughs> other parts of uh, my background. So I started to work in, as I said, machine learning in the early 90s. And at that point, the data sets that we as machine learning people had to work with were honestly kind of boring and lame. So there were, I remember the 20 news group data set, which were a bunch mm-hmm. of articles from 20 news groups. And one of the quote unquote challenge problems was, could you figure out which uh, news group an article came from? And it was uh, rather um, not super interesting also from an aspirational perspective, not only from a technical perspective, because um, you can't get a lot of enthusiasm. I couldn't get a lot of enthusiasm for classifying articles into news groups. Mm -hmm. And so in the uh, late 90s, I started to look around for data sets that I felt would have more of an aspirational nature to them and decided uh, to work in the space of biology because at that point, biologists were actually starting to accumulate data sets that seemed more interesting. Things like the first one I worked on was actually um, tuberculosis infection. So there was an interesting social network graph of who might 
have infected who with tuberculosis as well as some clinical data for each of them. I worked on some of the earliest data sets where people measured um, gene expression, gene activity profiles for cancer patients okay. and what could you extract um, from that about the type, subtypes of cancer that might exist. Uh, worked on some of the earliest human genetics pro uh, data sets as the Human Genome Project uh, came about. So really at that time, machine learning on biological data is actually much more interesting than a lot of other kinds of machine learning, both technically and certainly from the perspective you feel like you're doing something that could potentially make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so that was around the, as I said, the, the late 90s, early 2000s. And I worked in that area for a long time. Was this uh, all at Stanford? This or? was, yeah, this was all at Stanford, with the exception of a short sabbatical at UC San Francisco, okay. uh, where I actually spent time in a real biology lab, which was great. And I think it was um, a really exciting trajectory at that point to see how more and more technology developments were allowing biology to be measured in a quantitative way, and not just biology, but also medicine. So I worked on some really, I think, inspiring medical problems. Like one of them was on how can you take the measurements that are already taken from the uh, premature babies in a NICU. These are teeny little babies that are sometimes 28 weeks uh, gestational age, 1,500 grams are about as big as the palm of your hand. Mm -hmm. And by a combination of non-invasive measurements that machine learning could extract from the bedside monitors that measure their heart rate, uh, respiratory rate, and uh, pulse ox, can you predict much earlier which babies are going to need more attention and are going to have more significant medical difficulties than some of the others? And mm. it was actually really exciting to be able to discover new science, if you will, as a byproduct of what the machine learning was able to predict. So mm -hmm. that was a lot of fun. Um, and so that was sort of where I thought my career would continue to evolve. I fully expected to retire as an academic. And then sort of this unexpected transition happened that um, where work that I'd been doing at Stanford that had really nothing to do with my research. It was a side interest in technology-assisted education uh, <laughs> by a long process of a couple years in collaboration with several others of my Stanford colleagues emerged in the launch of the first three Stanford Massive Open Online courses right. back in the fall of 2011. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any of us had any expectation that this would turn out the way it did. But when we looked at those courses where each of the three had 100,000 people or more, mm -hmm. it was kind of... I was among that first batch in Andrew's course. Okay. <laughs> well, um, thank you for first being First or our... second batch. Well, thank you for being one of our earliest users. Uh -huh. We are grateful. <laughs> um, and it was one of those moments in time when you look at your life and there's a huge fork in the road and you could say, well, I can continue on my current path, which is a great path. Right. And likely if I do that, then this thing that I accidentally helped create would just likely die away because mm -hmm. no one else was going to like take it up and run with it. Mm -hmm. And, or I can, what I expected to do was put 
my career on hold temporarily and go do this other thing for a couple of years and really get it off the ground. And mm-hmm. so at that point, um, Andrew and I both decided to uh, take a leave of absence from Stanford and go and found Coursera together. Mm-hmm. And so that was um, something that we did kind of got started in the fall of 2011, and then our leave of absence became official in um, the beginning of 2012. Um, and then I ended up uh, doing that for about five years, um, <laughs> from uh, the, as I said, from about the, the fall of 2011 till the fall of um, 2016. And at some point in the middle, Stanford said, well, you know, your two years leave of absence are up, and so are you coming back? And I said, well, uh, not quite yet. And they said, well, if you're not coming back, then you have to resign. And, they, and I said, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. So I did. Mm-hmm. And I don't regret that at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I guess at that point it wasn't that standard to leave a shared professorship at a <laughs> top university. I think a lot more people are doing that now. Uh-huh. But um, but I think it was the right thing to do because I don't believe the company would have survived if I'd mm-hmm. um, gone back to Stanford in 2014. So I left Stanford in 2014, continued at Coursera for another couple of years. And then in 2016, the company was on a great trajectory, still is, by the way. But it was and still is primarily a content company. Yeah. I mean, one can try and sprinkle machine learning here and there and try and make it better, but it's not where the core of the business really lies. Right. And I realized that the company would do fine if I left, but um, whereas around me, when I looked, machine learning was changing the world. Yeah. All of a sudden, all that vague promise that had drawn me into the field in the first place, we were actually in a position to make that happen. But one place that it hadn't had much of an impact was on the life sciences. And that's really what brought me back because I felt like there was an incredible opportunity to take machine learning and apply it in an area where I was one of the very few people who could actually bridge those two worlds Mm -hmm. because I'd been doing it for a really long time. And I think I'm one of the few people, at least at a certain level of seniority, who's truly bilingual at this point. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you critically need in uh, this space is a few people who can really see both sides of it and bring them together in in new ways rather than just kind of here's a problem that someone has already kind of cut and dried and defined clearly right, now, right. go solve it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there are a ton of ways that you can apply machine learning in the broad domain of life sciences, healthcare, medicine. Uh, the particular one that you are involved in is in drug discovery. Right. I've seen you talk about and others talk about some of the context there, some of the numbers there that kind of define, you know, how dis- drug discovery is working for us. Mm. Uh, maybe you can share some of those. Yeah. So I think it's uh, known to pretty much everyone. You can't open a newspaper without seeing some discussion of drug pricing. Yeah. And we know it's broken. Right? We know it's badly <laughs> broken, but I don't think uh, people fully realize where some of those difficulties emerge from. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a narrative out there that all of it is you because 
uh, pharma companies are kind of trying to gouge the consumer and the insurance companies and the government. And I think it's certainly true that there has been some bad acting out there and, mm-hmm. and it, in ways that are inappropriate. But I think people also don't fully appreciate just how um, prone to failure this field is and how much investment one needs to make in time and money to find even one successful drug. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the... Are the numbers similar to like startup investing? Worse, I think. Okay. I mean, and because the costs are larger. Hmm. Um, I mean, the cost of making a single, getting a single drug approved, irrespective of whether it's a blockbuster drug that's going to make a ton of money or just something for an orphan indication, is $2.5 billion and rising. Uh, We don't pump that much money into most startups. No, you do not. (laughs) And now, admittedly, this is when you account for the cost of all of the failures, for all Mm -hmm. of the things that didn't quite make it. But even so, if you look at, well, how much amortized across the entire industry does it cost to make one successful startup? It's not nearly $2.5 billion. So I think there's... If you, my analogy for this is that drug discovery is like a really long road. It's, you know, 15 years is, is a not a, a unreasonable estimate that has multiple forks in it. One of those uh, paths is going to get you to, to success, maybe if you're lucky. 99 will not. You have no idea um, which of them is going to be more successful. So oftentimes it's a bit of a gut instinct or a guess. And when you take the wrong path, it's not that you find out in a matter of six months. There's no such thing as a, okay, I'm going to do a product market fit like you do in a fail. consumer. You, you don't fast <laughs> fail. It's three years and hundreds of millions of dollars before you slow fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it makes it very challenging to do this type of process. And one of the things that we really are hoping to do is to use machine learning to build what you might think of as a compass. Something that when you get to these forks in the road, you have a predictive model that is machine learning trained that says, you know, here's my probability distribution on the success of each of those paths. So here's the one that I recommend that you follow. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we hope will help avoid a lot of the wrong paths that are currently being taken and allow us to get to a successful drug much faster because you don't end up taking all that time to follow the wrong forks and with a much, much lower cost. Because mm-hmm. if you're um, not spending all that effort on things that are not going to succeed, then then hopefully that will really help bend that ridiculous cost curve that has come to be mm-hmm. called E-Room's Law, which is an interesting... E-Room's Law? E-Room's Law. If you think okay. about E-Room, E-R-O-O-M, it's the inverse of Moore's Law. Ah, okay. And Moore's Law is the exponential increase in productivity on the tech side, Erum's law is the exponential decrease in productivity on drug discovery in that the cost, the number of drugs approved per billion US dollars has been decreasing exponentially consistently for the past 70 years. Wow. And in thinking about that law, is it, you know, how much of that is friction in the discovery process, regulation, that kind of thing versus some kind of fundamental 
you know, we just running out of things to try or, you know, we losing ground to disease and generally like what's the way to think about all the components of that? I think that's a really excellent question. And people have written entire papers trying to tease apart the different factors here. Mm-hmm. Partly, I think there's a legitimate case to be made that there is an increased regulatory burden, some justified trying to be more careful about the lives and health of of patients in clinical trials, some less justified, just lots of bureaucracy and paperwork doesn't actually add value, but still costs money. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is what Jack Scannell, who's one of the bigger um, experts in this space, calls the better than the Beatles problem, Mm -hmm. which is that when you're in the business of um, movies or books and you're looking for the next blockbuster, next song, next movie, the movies from the past, the, the, the books from the past, people are looking for new stuff because they may mm-hmm. have already consumed that old stuff and they want a new piece of content. Mm-hmm. That's not true for drugs. I mean, you actually have to be better than all the previously approved drugs for this to make sense. Doctors are not looking for the next for thing. For a particular disease. Yeah. Meaning. Yeah. Yeah. So if you actually want to be better, if you want to actually have a market, you have to actually be, be better, better than, than everything, the ex- that everything that's been come before and has been yeah. approved. And so the the floor keeps rising, if mm-hmm. you will. The the bar that you have to overcome keeps rising. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you look at it in that light, there's a couple of different... You can think of it as a, almost like a dichotomy, if you will. There's things for which we've already done a pretty decent job of making drugs. Cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes... Um, infectious disease. There are these pretty, some pretty good drugs out there. And so the next drug really has to be better. Yeah. And to prove that it's better, you actually, in many cases, need a very large and very expensive clinical trial. Mm-hmm. And then there's the classes of diseases for which we really don't have any good drugs. Um, I think of those CNS disease of the neural of the of the central nervous system is probably the most obvious category, and that's because we have it's such a complicated system. We do not understand it. Probably won't for a very long time in the level of mechanistic understanding, and the model systems that we've been using to develop drugs to that. To, to disease in general, which are typically animal models, are a very far cry from the human um, central nervous system. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that it just doesn't translate in the sense that we find drugs that make mice smarter, have less, um, more empathic, um, have less neuronal death, and it just doesn't translate into human disease, largely because the mice don't get the disease in the first place Mm -hmm. and therefore you are artificially creating a disease in the mouse Mm -hmm. and then when you cure the artificial disease it turns out to have very little to do with curing the real disease Mm -hmm. interesting interesting so at incitra when you're thinking about this kind of compass analogy of what you do and the you know whoever the actor is in this case is at the fork in the road are you using machine learning to evaluate the efficacy potentially of some compound as a 
you know, as a treatment or are you applying machine learning to the, the broader system? Like, you know, what is the probability distribution that you're creating one that is incorporating market factors and all these other things? Or are you really focused on the biology at this point? No, we're at this point focused on the biology okay. and um, down the line we might focus on the chemistry and then maybe on things like the selection of patients for the clinical trial to identify the ones that are more likely to be um, responsive to the drug. And then mm -hmm. downstream from that is can we use machine learning to have better biomarkers of efficacy so that you can actually tell whether a patient is responding to your drug in ways other than literally a questionnaire that's filled out on sheets of paper <laughs> that a nurse then transcribes into the computer, right. which is how this is often done. Okay. Um, and I'm even downstream in the manufacturing. So I think there's a lot of opportunities before we get to market factors and okay. things like that. Right now, our focus, um, our primary focus is really on the biology and making a prediction on if I make this intervention in a human or even in this particular human, how likely is this human to respond? What is the clinical outcome going to be of that intervention? And that's a very challenging problem to make a prediction on, but I think there's some new mm -hmm. tools out there, both in the machine learning and on the biology side, that if you put them together, give us a chance of making those mm -hmm. predictions. That sounds to me like a personalized medicine type of application, which seems much further down than the, I'm at a compass trying to develop a drug. Yeah, no, the personalization is, I think, not really the key focus of what we're doing, but rather the recognition that a lot of the drugs that people have tried haven't succeeded because you're treating multiple diseases with one drug. So if you look at the hmm. um, big success of um, in the field of precision oncology in the last decade or so, a lot of the successes have come from the realization that breast cancer, for instance, is not one disease. Right. Um, the patients who are HER2 positive are very different from the patients who have a BRCA1 mutation, and you treat them with completely different therapies. Mm -hmm. Colleagues of mine who worked at Genentech at the time that Herceptin, which is the drug that targets HER2 positive breast cancers, uh, was developed, say that if you had applied, uh, if you tried out Herceptin in an all-comers breast cancer population, you would need a clinical trial of about 10,000 women in order to demonstrate even a tiny effect size because you're mm. averaging out on a whole bunch right. of people who are not going to respond but nevertheless have side effects. Mm -hmm. So... The, so in your case, it's less about personalization than targeting, really. Exactly. Targeting yeah. to the right patient population. You mentioned part of the opportunity here is kind of the, the application of, uh, you know, new machine learning techniques to these problems. What are, what's kind of the landscape of techniques that you're able to apply? So I think one... And before you continue, I think you crossed your arm over the microphone. Okay. Yeah, thanks. One of the things that we are doing is relying both on new developments in machine learning, but at the same time on new developments in um, high-throughput biology and, and uh, bioengineering. That's a space we're maybe less familiar to um, folks who are more expert in the technology side of things, but there's been as much progress on that side as there's been on machine learning. So, for instance, at this point there is the capability for us to take a small sample of your skin or a small sample of your blood, then transform that 
some of those cells into what are called stem cells. And these are those cells that can then turn into any lineage mm -hmm. in your body. And then I can basically create Daphne neurons or Daphne cardiomyocytes hmm. or Daphne hepatocytes. Oh, wow. And um, all of them have the genetics that I have. Um, so if I have a certain propensity to disease that would that manifests in that particular cell type, you could potentially see it there, but, um, but it's the right cell lineage. And so I have the ability at this point to basically do population diversity, but at the cellular level. Hmm. And I have the further ability to use amazing technologies like CRISPR that allow us to modify the genome to even create mutations that we know are disease-causing. So, for instance, if I want to really see what a very high-penetrant version of the disease looks like, I can introduce that mutation into a normal genome and see what the difference is between the with the mutation and without the mutation. Hmm. So think of it as the ability to artificially create training sets on what disease looks like at the cellular level. Interesting. And so now you think about, well, that gives me a ton of data because you have potentially hundreds of genetic backgrounds, maybe even more, with tens of thousands of readouts from each of those cells, like, uh, that, like the kind you might get from super resolution microscopy mm -hmm. or transcriptional measurements of all of the genes in the cell. And now you ask yourself, okay, with all of those measurements, if this is what healthy looks like, and this is all the population of unhealthy, where, what differentiates them? What does healthy cell look like relative to an unhealthy cell? Mm -hmm. And are the unhealthy cells, are they all one big homogeneous cluster? Or are there subclusters that are very distinctive at the molecular level? Mm -hmm. And then with that, you have an understanding of what the disease looks like at the level of cellular phenotypes, as they're called. And because it's an intervenable system, it's not a human. We're doing an experiment in a human right. is really right. hard. You can ask yourself, if I put this compound into uh, a bunch of cells that are from this cluster, does that revert the phenotype back to something that looks healthier? And if it does, maybe that's a drug that will also revert the phenotype at the clinical outcome level, which is what we ultimately care about because you want to mm -hmm. hear people, not cells. So basically, you can think about the machine learning as helping us to distinguish between um, different cellular phenotypes in a way that aligns with human clinical outcome. Interesting. And so from that perspective, is it primarily kind of an uh, unsupervised clustering types of approaches that you find most useful in your work or is it a, a broad set of, of things? It's actually a broad set of things because we do have some supervision signal, not as much as you would like because there is, for instance, some understanding that if you have this mutation, then your chances of disease are really high. So you can think of it as kind of like a bit of a supervision signal mm -hmm. or you have supervision signal in the sense of here's a hundred of these what's called induced pluripotent stem cells, IPS. Called what? Induced Pluripotent, pluripotent stem cells. cells. Stem cells. So pluripotent means they can go into multiple lineages, and induced means I created them from a skin sample rather than it. um, it's a fetal stem cell. Okay. So you have these iPS cells that you got from patients. That's the positives, and you have the iPS cells that you got from from controls. That's the negatives. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of supervision signal, but certainly not as much as you want. And so I think if you had to put a label on it, it falls largely in the category of weekly supervised learning. Okay. Not completely unsupervised, not yeah. completely supervised, but somewhere in between. Got it. Got it. And as you describe this, 
you can almost envision a kind of closed loop process where you're able to, you know, I've seen some of the, like the, the bio robots that can, you know, take an array and do all kinds of experiments at, you know, high throughput. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you there yet? Or Absolutely. Is it? Okay. Well, we, sorry, let me, let me, return. we, that's <laughs> For those who can't see you, she's getting very excited. Yes. <laughs> no, that's definitely in our roadmap and it's what we're working towards. The robots are already there. Yeah. Um, they're doing a lot of the high throughput, uh, more menial work automatically at this point Mm -hmm. we don't have the full-blown closed loop system yet Mm -hmm. um, because we only just got the lab up and running but the goal is exactly that we would have the ability to take data off the instruments process it automatically and then use what we see to to guide the next round of experiments and and i think that's going to be incredibly powerful both at the high level of you know the the high just the experiments in terms of what makes for sick versus healthy cells but we actually embed machine learning in every single part of what we do so for mm-hmm. instance imaging a plate with um imaging plate at, at 40x resolution across multiple fluorescent channels can take as long as 30 days. It's a very long experiment mm-hmm. because you just have to do tile by tile by tile. Mm-hmm. Do you really need to image every well and every tile in every well at 40x resolution? Mm-hmm. Or can you imagine using machine learning to say, I'm going to do a very quick pass at 10x, right. see, where, uh, see where the interesting things are, yeah. and then dig down at higher resolution into the cells that are more likely to be interesting. So yeah. you can think about machine learning and all sorts of different places. Or here's another example. Do you really need to image every single one of those fluorescent channels? Or can you infer from some channels what the other ones are going to be and then image fewer channels? It sounds easy, but then I'm envisioning these, you know, you're not building the robots from scratch. You're getting them from Roche or whoever, Life Sciences, and, you know, they're proprietary about the way that they control their robots. Like, can you easily insert your machine learning models into these off-the-shelf so first Tools. of all, is that even an issue? Am I picking at the no, right no, thing? No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It is definitely an issue. Um, some manufacturers are more open than others in terms of making their APIs available so that you can control their robot. You can control the microscope, for instance, from the outside. Um, and sometimes we have to actually kind of hack into this a little bit, but sometimes mm-hmm. they're being more flexible. And in some cases, we actually build custom hardware because hmm. um, because we have to do that um, because it provides us the flexibility that yeah. we need, both on the hardware side as well as the software side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we've talked through some examples of the, the, the kinds of problems that you're solving this way. I think there's a still a hole for me in like the, where do you start? What's the first step? What's the next step like? So I think the... First step is really to build a team that is truly (laughs) cross-functional and is able to communicate across what is usually a chasm between Mm. these two disciplines. Right. Most machine learning people took biology maybe back in high school sometime and have a vague recollection of what they learned but not much beyond that i mean there's so much there and what you're doing is biology it's chemistry it's genetics 
And on the other side, most biologists don't really know much about computer science or machine learning. Right. They may have done some whatever data analysis on an Excel spreadsheet, but mm -hmm. it's really two communities that don't have a lot of common language. And one of the things that we're really building is a community of people who really either have a foot in each camp, and we have a bunch of those people who are truly bilingual, mm -hmm. um, or even if they don't, they have a real willingness to kind of reach out across the chasm and have a meaningful collaboration. And I think that's absolutely essential because so much of what we do really requires this um, interaction between both sides. And what we find today is that once you've bridge that gap, you actually are in some ways programming in two programming languages simultaneously. Hmm. There is the programming language of whatever TensorFlow or PyTorch, which we yeah. all are used to when we think about computational modules. Right. But then there is equally valid experimental modules that you can kind of fit in. Like here's, um, you know, here's a set of CRISPR guides, introduce those CRISPR guides into the following set of cells, mm -hmm. differentiate this set of cells into the following lineage. And I'm not saying each of those steps is easy. They're actually harder in some ways than the computational steps because it's a little, I mean, because biology is finicky and these are live cells and yeah. they don't always do what they're told, unlike the bits in the computer, which generally do do what they're told. Yeah. Um, but you can still create a level of abstraction on those biological steps that you can incorporate into your overall procedure. So your procedure now has blocks that are computational and blocks that are biological. Mm -hmm. And it's a single, almost integrated process where these different pieces fit together and the whole is considerably larger than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. Where the typical approach is, okay, the biologist creates some data, throw it over the fence, and then someone does the analysis. When you have this sort of real integration of those two steps, the space of what you can do is obviously exponentially larger, and therefore it opens up capabilities to even to think about problems that you would never even have thought about, far less been able to solve without the integration mm -hmm. of those tools. I've got to imagine as the, the CEO of a company that depends so heavily on finding people with these two independently unique skill sets, mm -hmm. not to mention together, you maybe have an interesting perspective on, you know, auto ML and mm -hmm. the, you know, lowering the barriers to getting to the, you know, at least on the computational side. Any reaction to that? or I think that auto ML is a great enabler in some ways in that when you get to the point that you have defined a problem that has well-defined input-output specifications, you know you want to train your algorithm on the following, you want to train whatever predictor on the following data set with these inputs and these outputs and this objective function, then it allows you to avoid some of the annoying nitty-gritty of hyperparameter architecture search. What it doesn't do at all is tell you what problems to solve mm -hmm. and what kind, what's the right data to create, because we create our own data. So what data do you even create? Um, what's the right objective to train the model to? Because it, that actually matters. If you train your algorithm to regression, it might not do as good a job at classification and vice versa. And mm -hmm. which is the right one for the problem that you're trying to solve is, is not clear. And this is the simplest example that one could yeah. give. So, um, so I think 
it's going to help, but I don't think it's going to solve the problem for us. And I think also for a lot of other people, because the heart of what a really good machine learning person can do is understand the domain enough that you can identify new problems that no one has thought about. And it sounds like that's the stage of the journey that your company is at very much so. And I think that's hopefully the stage of the journey that we will be at for a long time. Not that we won't be solving some of the problems that we come up with today, but I think there's so many of those problems that one could imagine making a big impact on in the drug discovery and development process that even once we nail some of the earlier problems and maybe move more towards this iterative refinement mode, there's going to be new problems that we're going to have to tackle. You know, when you think about kind of the broad landscape of problems that gets us most quickly to a healthier population, like how do you segment those or think about that, that landscape? In terms of, um, you know, where are the opportunities for folks that are interested in applying machine learning to make folks healthier? Oh, I see. You know, Sorry. Drug yes. discovery and, and in particular, you know, you're working on a specific niche within drug discovery. What are some other things that you think are interesting? Well, I think we're working today on a particular um, phase in the drug discovery process. It's not by any means the place that we'll end up because this for us is the beginning of a journey towards mm-hmm. building what I hope will be the you know first fully um, data enabled, data driven drug discovery and development company so mm-hmm. that every step of the process is now based on data production and machine learning as core technologies. And I think that you've seen companies like that emerge in other parts of the tech space where, for instance, Amazon is a fully data-enabled retail company. And in it's not just in, you know, the early days of just being a little bit better at recommending items to you right. and and having the orders be all managed automatically now it's at every step of the way they're enabled using data and machine learning and technology we hope to be doing that for drug discovery and development mm-hmm. um and that, b- before we go to to, to other areas yeah. are the traditional drug discovery companies that far behind you know i think there are islands in some of those companies where they're trying to bring in machine learning and technology to accelerate things, you know, and and it varies. There was a recent announcement about one company that's using it to accelerate some manufacturing processes. Another one that's using it to enable better design of small molecule binders to a particular protein. Most of those efforts fall into the category of here's a problem I'm already solving anyway. Mm -hmm. I'm solving it not, maybe not in the perfect way, maybe it's too slow, maybe I can introduce some additional optimization, so I'm going to use machine learning and to optimize Sprinkle some ML process. someplace in and the middle. And it's not a stupid idea. I mean, yeah, it's, going to yeah. be, it's going to be probably helpful, and it's going to reduce the cost by, by whatever, 20% or mm-hmm. something like that. That's great, but it's not transformative. I don't know of any companies that are in the process of saying, okay, you know what, we're just going to have to rethink the process from the ground up. And one way of thinking about this, I don't know if it's true, is to ask whether of the big tech giants that are really fully data-enabled, 
from beginning to end, mm-hmm. did any of them actually emerge from the existing incumbents? I yeah. mean, Amazon did not emerge from Walmart. Right. And uh, Netflix didn't emerge from Blockbusters or one of the Hollywood studios. Mm-hmm. And Google didn't emerge from the Yellow Pages. Right. <laughs> so um, these are all kind of the non-tech-enabled precursors to, yeah. to those companies. And in some cases, you need to ask yourself, okay, if I was building this from scratch, what would it look like? So to answer the second part of your earlier question, I think clearly there's opportunities beyond drug discovery and development. There's some interesting work happening in the device space in terms of using the you know mobile phone that we all carry in our pockets mm-hmm. to give us both uh, better tracking of our health state and better nudges to take a healthier lifestyle. Move us towards the tricorder. Yeah, move us towards (laughs) the tricorder. I think the challenges here are that the folks um, that carry these devices and require those lifestyle changes are not nearly as obedient as the folks on Star Trek. So, So compliance is an issue. I think there's some interesting work that's happening in that space, but it's it, it's a road that has its own challenges. It's mm-hmm. not uh, maybe as much of a scientific challenge, but there's a lot of questions about human psychology and mm-hmm. affecting behavior change. I think there's some interesting work that's happening in hospitals as well as potentially in insurance companies for early warning systems for getting people into care or warning the physicians in an emergency care word that someone's about to crash or about to have uh, a sepsis attack or something. And I Mm -hmm. think that's an interesting space. I think there's a lot of places where one can ask with the new tools that we have in hand and the ability to collect large amounts of data, what are problems that we can just Mm -hmm. solve that no one's really ever tried to solve before. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Daphne, thanks so much for taking some time to share with us what you're up to. Clearly very exciting stuff and a pleasure meeting and chatting with you. Uh, It's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.